Amen. Thank you. Uh, please be seated. And if you have a Bible, I'm going to be turning to Revelation chapter 2. Once again, we uh, introduced the study of the uh, letters to the churches and set it in its historical context, considered the outlines of the letters and some basic lessons we might learn. We turn now to Revelation chapter 2 to more specifically see the situation at the church in Ephesus. I plan on having one more sermon specifically on uh, the remedy that the Lord gives to the church, but I'd like to consider the, uh, the ins and outs of this letter with you, remembering your first love. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things say he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Amen. Once more, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we would also be giving grace to hear what the Spirit still says to the churches, and that we might take such uh, challenging words to heart, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear in our day what the Spirit would say to us. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. It was definitely not easy to be Christ's lampstand in the darkness of a city like Ephesus. It was as famous for its pagan immorality as it was for being a, quote, hotbed of every kind of cult and superstition. As one writer puts it, the massive temple of Artemis, or Diana, in the Roman pantheon, was in the center of the city, considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, uh, an enormous building. The city was also a prosperous trade center and a bustling port city with all that went along with that. I'm sure they also had camel jams, just like we have traffic jams today. It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia with a population well over a quarter million, quite big for that day. Uh, Paul brought the good news to Ephesus a generation earlier in his second missionary journey, and he had stayed there, you remember, for three years uh, so that we read all Asia, that is Asia Minor, the Roman province, heard the word of the Lord. They also had been blessed with the best of leaders. Paul, of course, began, and then Timothy was there. Then John himself, our, our author, he labored at Ephesus. Can you imagine the preaching that they enjoyed every week? Uh, the church was blessed to have Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla and others serving there. Tradition says that John brought Mary the, the mother of Jesus, to live with him in Ephesus, and that he continued to care for her until her death, and that she is buried there today. Well, 
The point is, this church was blessed with many advantages. And in this letter, the Lord abundantly commends them for so many things. I know your works, your labor, and your patience. Or some of you have perseverance, he begins. That is to say, they were a a faithful and a fruitful congregation in the face of difficulty. He praises the church because it had no tolerance for those who professed the Christian faith but justified an immoral lifestyle. I know that you can't bear those who are evil. Uh, Verse 6, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Uh, As uh, best we know, not a ton of evidence, but uh, from some early records, if it's the same Nicholas, uh, one who was teaching immorality, that uh, grace should lead us to be able to do anything and have our sins forgiven. And so let us not sin. Let us sin that grace should abound. Well, you hate those deeds, and I hate them too. Jesus would not be considered politically correct today. He commended them for their intolerance. You can't bear such people. And he says, you have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. Somebody would say, oh, I got a word from the Lord right now that there's 20 of you that have $1,000, and if you sow that seed, the Lord will repay you with a harvest. They said, don't listen to that guy. Get him out of here. He uh, would be gone. There was much to commend the church. They had endured a spiritual conflict. Verse 3, you have persevered and have had patience and have labored for my namesake without being weary. There was this uh, ongoing struggle that would not dim their uh, strength at all. So there was so much to commend at the church of Ephesus. But of course, all was not well. Something was fundamentally wrong, and Jesus puts his finger on it in verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Or perhaps more literally translated, the text reads, you have left your love the first. The emphasis, in other words, being placed on the word first. Not that you have no love, but that you've left your first love. Your love is not what it was. You've lost that loving feeling. As I pointed out to you last time, the text doesn't say whether it's love for God or love for Christ or love for fellow believers or love for the lost. I think it's best to understand this as Christian love in general, which is closely tied together, including love for the Lord and love for one another and even love for the lost as the overflow. And it's impossible to love God and not love our brethren and those made in his image, all that. So the fact that it's just love uh, surely includes the Lord but not only the Lord. So they still love the Lord, but not like they did at first. They still loved one another, but, but not like they used to. They still good, good deeds. They still lived upright lives. They still rejected false teachers for God's sake, frequented worship, read the word, prayed and sang. But there was, there was something that was diminishing Inside, Their religion was becoming more external than internal, more mechanical than heartfelt. And what does that look like? Well, service is more out of obligation, study perhaps more academic, less vital and transformational. They were still coming to worship, but they were lacking the joy and the energy The spontaneity and the creativity of the Christian life that flows from that was waning. One writer speculates their love for Christ and one another 
had once motivated all that they did, bringing joy, creativity, freshness, spontaneity, energy, but now their energy source was depleted. Their work had become mundane, mechanical, and their lives a picture of self-satisfaction. Instead of their love abounding, it was lacking. Instead of being motivated by the heart, their works lacked the energy that sprang from former love, and in some cases vanished. So that's the situation, some review from last week. And so I'd like to consider this passage today with some question and answer in order that we might also be able to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches even today. My first question, or questions in this case to you, is why is this loss of love so serious? I mean, why does it distress the Lord so deeply that his threat of judgment is so severe? It's a matter of life and death for this church. Why? Well, first, of course, Jesus taught that this is the first and greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God unreservedly with all our heart and soul and strength and mind. And the sum of all God's commandments is to be found here, first in our service in love for God. It's our first priority. It's the reason that we have been created as we are, that love is the richness of our life. And nothing is more right, nothing is more fulfilling or more rewarding than loving such a great God and creator and savior. And God himself is love. And it's the richness of our life because it was first the richness, riches of his. And so God is infinitely worthy above all of the love we could possibly give him. In fact, Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me isn't worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That is to say, all other relationships, the closest of family ties, are idolatrous if they have any comparison to our love for him. Jesus declared, of course, that the second commandment is like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These are inseparable companions. And his own assessment is that on these Two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. There's no other commandment greater than these. Paul calls love the more excellent way of living. It's the chief virtue that should govern all that we do and say in the Christian life. Uh, You know that beautiful passage in 1 Corinthians, uh, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, it's a beautiful, beautifully written passage. Um, And what's the main point of that literary masterpiece as it goes on? No matter how great your giftedness is, no matter how great the extent of your service, if it is not motivated by love, it is nothing. Love is also closely tied to our mission in the world. For by this love for one another, all men will know that you are my disciples, Jesus said. It's a powerful witness of the mutual love that has always existed in the Trinity into which we are brought. Um, Our churches, remarks one writer, our churches are to be love centers where relationships between members are a persuasive reflection of the mutually supportive, utterly loyal, and eternal accepting love of the Father and the Son. You ever think about that? I found that a little challenging. Love centers. A persuasive reflection of this mutual, loyal, accepting love of father and son. 
It was love that motivated Martin Lloyd-Jones to leave his prestigious medical career to preach God's word. It says in his biography that he came to see the love of God expressed in the death of Christ in a way which simply overwhelmed him. Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, uh, said that if money could motivate the merchants of England to cross life-threatening oceans and enter the interior of China at great personal risk of loss of life, couldn't the love of Christ motivate missionaries to do the same for the sake of the gospel? Love is the great motivation for all of our service for people for Christ's sake. It's the sustaining power that enables us to endure so many difficulties. Indian missionary Amy Carmichael, she, she just had this magnetic way of drawing people to herself through the love of God. She just exuded the love of God so much that the Hindus suspected that she had been using some mysterious power, some witchcraft or something that drugged the children make them long to be near her. So suspicious were they of the way that she just drew these children to herself. It was, it was love, pure and simple. Uh, this, this is to be the center of all that we do, the, the motivation, it's the great commandment, on and on. That's why it's such a, great, a big deal. And, and what happens when love for Christ is diminished? Well, as I said earlier, we tend to drift into religious ritual and tradition, denominational distinction, doctrinal correctness, moralistic rules, overlooking the essential foundational elements of love for God and neighbor, like the Pharisees who were tithing mint and rue and every herb and neglecting justice and the love of God. And without burdening you anymore, the Bible therefore everywhere directs us to pursue love Keep ourselves in the love of God. Abide in Christ's love. Walk in love as Christ has loved us. Consider how to love one, how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. On and on. And so it's vital to the church, to the spiritual health of individuals, that we know how to grow love, cultivate love, protect love, and uh, exude love. And... Uh, this is what sets the Christian faith apart, right? No ancient philosopher, no modern philosopher, no Plato, Aristotle, Kant, or Russell ever taught anything like such far-reaching ideas of love as our Lord. No political figure from Caesar to Churchill or anyone since has ever made such demands upon his followers to love. No religious teacher, Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, ever commanded his followers so to love one another as he loved them and gave his life for them. No other system or theology or philosophy says so much about the divine motivation of love or expresses love to the degree that God's love has expressed itself for us in the death of Christ on the cross. And so it's the heart and center of all that's to be going on. All those things were going on in the church, but the center was beginning to weaken and give way. And that's why, at the heart of the church, there was an unseen struggle that was actually life or death. Well, what did they need to do? What did they need to do? Well, surely first they needed to recognize the problem, which is why the Lord is writing this to them. Waning love is one of those things that's often hard to put your finger on it until it's too late. I mean, 
you know, things start to break down. There's arguments, there's jealousies, there's factions, uh, nerves are uh, on edge, um, things creep out. You, you don't know what the problem is exactly, but at the heart of it, it's just a lack of love. And it's interesting, this church was not deceived by false teachers, but they were deceived, or at least they didn't recognize a lack of love within. False apostles, spot them a mile off. A lack of love, the main thing, the big thing at the center. Didn't recognize it slipping away. They needed to recognize the problem. Secondly, they needed to recognize that the lack of love was actually life-threatening. Uh, This letter is not just pointing things out. As one person said, it's a wake-up call to them. In fact, to all churches. Love or die. Uh, That's the urgency of the letter. Calling the church to action. Jesus says, I'm going to come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Some brief explanation of this, you know that the coming of the Lord is often in Scripture, Old Testament as well as New Testament, a reference to him coming in judgment, right? Don't make me come down there. Uh, the Lord came. The Lord is coming with his mighty ones. Uh, the Lord, uh, previous studies and various prophecies showing you how this nation, that nation, that nation, the Lord came, the Lord coming to them, and it's, uh, it's going to be the end for them. And so we don't always have to read the second coming, in other words. Jesus is not saying, if you don't repent, the second coming is right around the corner. That's not the point. The point is, I'm going to come in judgment. And he says, remove your lampstand from its place. Remember, previously, last week, we saw that the churches are represented as lampstands. Basically, you're not going to be there anymore when I'm done, unless you restore your love, unless you repent, he says. The church can obviously survive persecution. And that has been proven time and again, as well as here in Ephesus. The church can survive persecution, but it can't survive lovelessness. Lovelessness is death. And so they needed to recognize that this was a life-threatening, urgent problem. Third, the leaders of the congregation uh, needed to direct the congregation in remembrance, repentance, and rekindling of love. Uh, love can be revived. It can grow again. Lives can be rededicated to Christ. The freshness of love can be breathed again into prayer and Bible study, evangelism, worship, fellowship with others. But it's not always so easy to restore a heart that lacks love. I mean, a cold heart soon becomes a hard heart. And hard hearts are very resistant to change. So Jesus has written, uh, again, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, I uh, take as probably the messenger or the, uh, the preacher, the one who's delivering or reading the message, to whoever's giving the message or the, the, uh, the courier, uh, this, this is a matter that the congregation needs to address themselves to, remembrance, repentance, and rekindling of love. This is a uh, threefold remedy to the lack of love in the church at Ephesus. He commands them to remember the love that had once marked their church, recall their past joys, deep 
these attitudes, experiences in the church, and repeat them and act upon them. He commands them to repent, to turn back to him and to restore that love that they once possessed for him. Turn back to me. Uh, and he commands them to do the works they did at first. They are to re-engage in these deeds of love that they had now been waning or abandoning. So we too always need to recall our former love and joy and zeal in the life of the church in order to repeat and to build upon these things. And our memories will guide our present action and provide future direction. They set the standard. They motivate change. Remembering these things will keep us from lapses in love. Remembering can lead us to repenting and returning to our first deeds. And the church had to identify that they had lost something very valuable and return to that former devotion. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and to do the first works. So we have more on the remedy next week. I thought about doing more, but it's actually going to take me a whole sermon, so I'm going to talk more about the remedy, about how specifically we can, um, from, the, from not only this passage, but from the scripture, address ourselves to renewing our love for God uh, and for each other, for the lost. Okay. Third, uh, why, why should this evaluation of the church at Ephesus matter to us today? Why should it matter to us today? Well, I hope I've already given you many things to think about. We need to remember these things as well to lead ourselves in the direction that we need to go. This portion of Scripture is a gift from God that we too might hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The problems that Ephesus and the other churches faced are the very same kinds of problems that we face today. It's the same diagnosis that we can see again. Christ sees the problems and the sins perfectly. We see them imperfectly. We need to look at our own church the way that Christ evaluates it. And more importantly, we need to grasp Christ's solutions to these perennial problems of Christian church life. We need to learn which qualities Christ praises and strive for these qualities, the means of correcting them, uh, and recognize that Christ is the church's cornerstone, head, and judge. What he matters, uh, what he says matters for eternity. So if we listen to the counsel of these letters, we can learn much that will help us keep from failure or from this danger. Now, the fact is, speaking generally, the, the church is losing credibility more and more over the years in the world, in part because it has lost its first love. I don't mean to suggest that the cross of Christ is now uh, losing credibility or anything like that. But Jesus himself says, by this, men will know that you are my disciples. By this, they will know that the Father has sent the Son. Um, we see in the book of Acts, chapter 2, chapter 4, this loving community has a very powerful and um, winsome um, effect on the community. And when we lose such love and the testimony of such love, we also lose 
credibility and effectiveness in evangelism. George Barna reported that there are 40 times as many churches in America as McDonald's restaurants. I'm actually surprised it's not larger. Uh, it's a, there's a lot of churches because I know there's a lot of McDonald's around. So he also reported in the same survey that for the most part, people see the church as an outdated institution with little to offer the contemporary person. Um, I don't know exactly know what that means, but do, do people think that the church is marked by a profound love? Like we read in Acts 2, Acts 3, do, do they, do they uh, see with some astonishment the genuine care that we have for one another's needs, the Christian hospitality, the unselfish generosity, the giving of ourselves to one another? Do they observe joy in the Lord and spiritual vitality in a people who are eager to minister in a suffering world and to labor for his namesake? The people visiting find a warm and welcoming atmosphere that demonstrates the overflow of such love, even for them. Do they sense Christ's compassion and the kind of a loving community that's described everywhere by the New Testament writers? I think we also have fallen far short. Uh, Dick Halverson was the chaplain to the U.S. Senate a few years ago. Uh, he wrote this. You know, in the beginning, he says, the church was a fellowship of men and women centered on the living Christ. And the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. And then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Next, it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. And finally, it moved to America, where it's become an enterprise. Well, maybe business is good, but love is bad. And if love is bad, we don't have any other hopes to sustain our life any more than the church at Ephesus did. We also need to remember and return to our first love as well. And that's why we should consider Christ's evaluation to the churches. That's why we need to give ourselves, we'll see next time, to rekindling our love and to restoring what we may have lost. If Jesus is worth following, then we must follow and persevere. If he is worth loving, then we must continually be renewing our love for him and for others in his name. Um, when we find unexpected tragedy, when we find ridicule and scorn, when we find opposition, perseverance is what's called for. This, per, this continual clinging to the Lord, knowing that it is he who is the way, the truth, and the life. And... Are we persevering, especially in our love? Now, in conclusion, we know how the church at Ephesus did respond to Christ's rebuke. Um, you might be interested to know that sometime around the beginning of the second century, Ignatius, uh, one of the apostolic fathers, he wrote a letter to this church at Ephesus, uh, a letter that's full of praise for what he calls the deservedly happy church. As it's known everywhere, he said, for its good deeds and brotherly love and unity. Ignatius had been arrested for his faith. He was being taken to Rome to be, to be executed. And as he and his guards passed near Ephesus, a delegation of Christians was sent out to encourage him as he was facing a martyr's death. And after the visit, the, Ignatius sent them this letter thanking them for their care, specifically praising their love, commending them as a church, quote, characterized by faith in and love of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He rejoices that they, quote, love nothing in human life, only God. 
and especially commends this overseer of the church named Onesimus, saying that this, he is a man of inexpressible love. According to ancient tradition, by the way, this was none other than that runaway slave, that Christian convert whom Paul sent back to Philemon, as we read in the New Testament letter, bearing his name. They, they heeded, they heeded the charge, they returned to the Lord in love, and it overflowed in their church to others. Now, this is important because we live in a day of crumbling morality. It makes us feel at times that we are more and more living and ministering in a place like Ephesus. Jesus says, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. We get discouraged about laws. Uh, We get discouraged about immorality. We get discouraged about the news that makes us feel overwhelmed with evil. And we need to look to the example of this church and be reminded that with the Lord's indwelling power and Jesus walking in our midst and the call that brings us the power of love again, that we will be able to stand in the evil day and the future lies with us in the church and not with the world which is passing away. I'll conclude with a prayer of Nathaniel Vincent, 1684, uh, in his Discourse on Love. He says, O love, how much want is there of you in the church of Christ? And how much does the church feel for this want? It groans, it languages, it dies daily because of your absence. Return, O love, return, repair breaches. Restore paths to dwell in, edify the old ways and places, and raise up the foundation of many generations. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we feel that we too have much in the way of love that that we must uh, confess is lacking in our hearts. We remember better days. We remember better days individually and even as a church and so many things. And we pray that as the church does continue to grow in number, that it may return to grow more and more in love. We pray that in all these things that uh, you would be pleased that the Lord Jesus would bless, that the Holy Spirit, whose office it is to bear the fruit of love, would be at work in every heart and life, that we too, persevering in it, might bear fruit for your name in the church and to eternal.